Hello and welcome to the Modern Britain podcast, a student show where I, Harry, and my good friend Jack explore the world of progressive politics. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Preet Gill, the Labour and Cooperative MP for Birmingham Edgbaston. First entering the Commons in 2017, Preet has had a meteoric rise in the Labour Party, earning herself a spot in the Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Minister for International Development. During our conversation, we discuss Preet's journey into politics, her view on current affairs and the world of international development. We really enjoyed today's conversation and we really hope you do too. Thank you for listening. Preet Gill, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. It's wonderful to, to be with you. Thank you. Great. I thought we could just uh, start by talking a little bit about your journey into politics, because um, obviously before going into it, I was fascinated to learn about your work as a social worker in both Israel and India. Um, and I just wondered what about these experiences motivated you to go into politics and perhaps specifically international development? Well, I was clearly inspired in terms of getting into politics because of my father. So my father stood to be a Labour councillor. He wasn't quite successful. He pretty much supported most of the MPs, uh, very a big fan of Tony Blair. And so, you know, I, 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 when I was growing up, it was a common thing to have lots of politicians in and out of our house. And my father regularly as teenagers getting us to go and do leaflets, which we used to find as quite a laborious task, I have to say. But I suppose you never know, do you, how that prepares you to, in terms of your interests. And of course, Adam, I'm one of seven. So me and my father used to really watch Question Time, you know, news, really sort of be very politically engaged, have an opinion on pretty much everything. Um, and there was a recession in the 1980s in Sandwa where, I, where we lived, where we grew up. And I remember my father purchasing cheese from a factory across the road and just going around with this white van and distributing it. You know, that concept of food banks back in the 80s in that recession uh, was quite remarkable uh, to, to see. But that's the kind of person he was. And, you know, if you'd meet someone on the street um, and they needed support, because, of course, back in the 80s, a lot of the services that we see today didn't exist. Um, and I remember people used to say to me, God, your front room's like this railway station. You've got a constant flow of people. What's going on? And that would be my father that would say, yeah, my daughter will help and support you do your DWP claim. And I used to say to my father, my goodness, I really don't know if this is correct. And he's like, you really should be helping people. It's not about just helping yourself. Um, and so, you know, that kind of sense of your community giving back. Uh, was something that pretty much uh, I grew up with. And then when I went away to university, the one thing my father, it's never left me, said to me, he said, it's great that you're going to further yourself, you're going to get an education, um, and it's going to, you know, hopefully give you a good career. Um, but I want you to also think about what are you going to give back to your community and society and how you're going to make the world a better place because you live in it. And I think that always sort of struck um, with me, and that's probably why I ended up doing a degree in sociology with social work. Um, I was inherently interested in terms of, uh, you know, how society worked um, and certainly wanted to get a cross-cultural perspective. And so the final year of my day, uh, lecturer, you know, my head of department for social work actually wrote for the International Social Work Journal. She went to Papua New Guinea and did lots of really great research. So I was really inspired by that. And um, I had the opportunity to go to India and work with street children in Delhi. Uh, so working with Plan International, UNICEF, um, and, you know, really understanding how, how in India it's the NGO, the non-government organisations that actually deliver a welfare and deliver support, not traditionally in the way that we do here, the state. 
uh, and that really sort of uh, made me value, uh, you know, Britain and and actually, uh, you know, our, our investment in our public services and how important that is because so many countries just don't have it. And of course, you know, I'm no different to most diaspora communities in that I saw my family, my grandparents, my parents regularly send remittances back to India, regularly thinking about that sense of their responsibility. And so, you know, my family, you know, helped support the school in my village, the dispensary, medication, um, making sure that those that were well off in my village were actually provided for. And my father felt that because he came to Britain and he could, uh, you know, further his aspirations, get a good job, he was never going to forget his responsibility to those that were left behind and certainly uh, his family. And again, the kibbutz, you know, living on a kibbutz and going to Israel uh, when I was at university and I did Camp America. So, you know, you had these opportunities to really travel during summer and learn about the world. I was always interested in that. And so to me, I found this concept so fascinating. That childhood environment sounds so politically rich. That's that's really interesting. Obviously, from there, you were you were first elected as an MP in 2017. Um, and already, only five years later, you find yourself as a shadow cabinet minister. And I guess I wonder from that, you know, how do you think you've managed to achieve that that rapid rise within Labour? Yeah, well, firstly, can I just say what an honour it is to represent, you know, the place where I grew up, where my father was a bus driver, where my family live, where I'm right there on the border and in the constituency all of the time. And I went to the local school and I think that's important. The amount of uh, doors that I knocked during the election and I heard lots of people say to me, my daughter went to that school. Well, coming into politics and certainly to stand for an MP, I needed to have so much experience. I needed to know so much. Um, but most importantly, I wanted girls from where I live to know that actually this is uh, a career pathway that's achievable for them as well and something that they should not, you know, think that they can't do. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, right from the outset, we've opened our office up to young people so that they get, you know, that richness of experience and understand uh, what a member of parliament does. Because, of course, many people seem to think our role is quite glamorous and it's all London based, but actually it's a hell of a lot of hard work. and you know, me grounded, remembering that actually it was the people of Edgbaston that elected me. Um, and I, my first responsibility lies to them. And of course, it's a, an absolute honour to serve under Keir's leadership. It's an absolute honour to be on his shadow cabinet. I backed him, as you know. Um, for me, he's a politician that, that the world needs, that the country needs. Uh, you know, resetting that integrity back into our democracy. Somebody who's really passionate and cares about um, the state of, uh, what, you know, the economy, the kind of cost of living crisis, the very fact that, you know, uh, Labour's been, a, I, I would say, a credible opposition given the amount of U-turns we've managed to get the government, that shows clear leadership because, of course, the government is now having to follow uh, many of those proposals we put forward. Um, but I, but I would say that the journey is never easy. You always go through the imposter syndrome. You always question yourself. You always question whether you know enough and whether your politics is, is, is you know, uh, the, 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 you've got the political nows, for example. Um, but I think this comes with time. And I think, you know, that confidence builds. And, and, you know, I've got, there was a fantastic intake in 2017. We're very supportive of each other. Um, but the thing for me, when I came here, despite all the differences within the party and, and uh, you know, uh, the divisions, for me, I really value that I'm here. And you can never take for granted how long you'll be 
a, a member of parliament and I knew that when I got here I was going to put my head down and work and work hard for my constituents and be a strong voice for those people uh, and not get, in, not get caught up in those kind of factional divisions or get sidelined and that's exactly been my approach and that's exactly what I've done. I, I'm very hard working, you know, it's something I've been uh, brought up with uh, in terms of my work ethos and in my integrity. I have a fantastic team that support me. I've been very, very lucky, really good people that share very similar values to me. Um, so I think, you know, it's been a journey um, and certainly with confidence, with support. And so I really, really honestly uh, value Keir appointing me to this role and giving me this opportunity. He has really helped me to grow. Um, and it says a lot about him about giving us opportunities, especially to women uh, on the shadow cabinet as well. So it's just interesting how you mentioned Keir Starmer there. Sonny's also had a very successful rise in politics. And obviously you talk about your youth and how that's led to you having your career in politics. But in a way, this sort of goes against the general trend. Many people worry that young people these days are disenfranchised from a career in politics. Why do you sort of think that is? And what do you think can be done to change this? Well, look, I think since Johnson has been in power, I, I hear more and more people say that they're disenfranchised because this, this disruptive politics that Johnson plays, he wants to actually tarnish all politicians as being the same as his. Um, and I think, you know, I think there is a real danger with the rise of populism and the fact that, you know, we've got a government that is uh, stoking divisions, culture wars, rather than actually showing leadership. I think it's really important because we now see what uh, the outcome is of not leading um, the country. I mean, the fact of the matter is we've caused a living crisis, which Labour's been for months calling on the government to do something about giving them solutions to do and they've had to be brought kicking and screaming to the dispatch box and even then they haven't gone far enough and to be honest I mean these are failures that we've seen pretty much across government departments I think you know the fact that we have rail strikes and you know the government could have absolutely addressed this by negotiating that's what leadership does it negotiates it sits at the tables it finds a resolution it puts the British public at the heart and at the fore of that and what we have is a government that's starting to blame everybody else but itself but it's been in power for 12 years and I think you know um, I think there is a real danger because misinformation uh, how social media is being used is a real challenge for all of us um, going forward and so you know I can understand why young people feel disenfranchised but I, I want young people to feel hopeful because the Labour Party is aspirational it wants people to do well it wants people to be able to get jobs where they are it, it wants to invest in the jobs of the future um, you know we can do so much better it does not have to be like this Johnson and his uh, government would think that this is it of course we're the only G7 nation to uh, have increased taxes for example to cut aid for example to retreat from the world stage so the decisions that we have taken is actually down to this government who's been really really irresponsible um, and they just don't have uh, the ideas they don't have a plan in terms of how we're going to take the country forward and actual fact what they seem to be manufacturing and orchestrating is us heading into a recession because you know they are not uh, supporting uh, uh, especially public sector in terms of a wage increase because we know that wages just haven't uh, you know kept in line with inflation um, and this idea suddenly you know that the increase in inflation is being uh, you know, being blamed on on uh, wages well actually that's absolutely incorrect because wages have always lagged behind and so this government would rather than tell people the truth tell people what the solutions are is put out the misinformation blame everybody else and then do absolutely nothing about it so we've got to do more to appeals to them 
and that they can get excited. We need to see much more movements, to be honest. I mean, this isn't just about young people. It's about all of us. You know, I, I get it post-COVID. Um, you know, recoveries are important. We've seen such a great loss, not just here, but of course, around the world. Um, but, you know, things can and will get better. Um, and, you know, we need to take young people with us as well in terms of what that off offer is. And I, you know, I, I'm really, really hopeful that as Labour continues to, uh, as it goes forward and starts setting out its policy ahead of an election or election, actually the British public can get behind that and get excited about it. I think I think that's a really strong criticism of uh, Johnson. I think one that me and Jack would definitely both agree with. Um, so you, you've spoken a little bit about there that going up to the next election, you think you hope with the outline of more policy um, that, that 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 appeal to young people or perhaps the wider electorate is going to become even, even more vivid for people. So would that be sort of your response to some people's criticism that maybe Sakir hasn't quite outlined his vision yet? Well, look, I think, you know, I have to say, there's a level of unfair criticism levied at Keir Starmer. I think if he, you know, when you think back and think in the last two years since he became the leader of the Labour Party, he has had huge amounts of issues to deal with. Not, of course, um, internal issues, because of course, a party that looks internally that is constantly divided and factional doesn't win elections. And you know. Keir is all about we have got to win uh, an election in order to change the future of the British public and to have a Britain that is not just doing well for its people, but of course is there, you know, asserting itself post Brexit on the world stage as a trusted partner with the big solutions. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the very fact that he's addressed anti-Semitism, the fact that he has made the party more outward looking, the fact that we have we are getting the hearing from the British public, the fact that Keir has been out. I have never seen any anybody work so hard. He's so committed to bringing back change and bringing um, the Labour Party back as a trusted uh, a party, one that the British public can absolutely have confidence in terms of it being fiscally responsible, the economic offer it has. Uh, you know, what we'll be saying about uh, health and social care going forward, what we'll be saying about security, not just national security, but of course, people's security around jobs, um, being able to get training, getting onto the housing market, all these things. I mean, every policy decisions uh, this far ahead of a general election. What do, what do you think will happen? Of course, the Conservatives will just take our ideas as they have been. I mean, we've seen the evidence base of that for the last two years. Um, and suddenly it just becomes uh, you know, this uh, it, it, it isn't the right timing. There's so much going on in the country that we need to be absolutely focused on in terms of what are we going to be doing about this cost of living crisis? What are we going to be doing about the fact that we have so many uh, people unemployed? And the thing is, uh, once we know when the next general election is going to be, of course, we will be setting out our policy offers and we will be costing uh, our uh, manifesto. And let's not forget, our shadow chancellor was the chief economist at the Bank of England. Very, very credible. And it will be the country's first chancellor of the Exchequer. Rachel Reeves is very, very impressive. And, you know, I, I hear from my constituents that actually people are really uh, listening to her. Uh, and what she's saying, because they know that she will absolutely be transparent, but actually she can be trusted with the public purse. Absolutely. I think your I think your points about um, his tackling of anti-Semitism being more outward looking are absolutely true. And I also agree with that, really agree with that final point on Rachel Reeves. I think she's had a lot of success recently, especially on the windfall tax. Um, so now I can I can completely agree there. Um, so obviously we've got a couple of by-elections coming up. So that's that's the next thing. We've got uh, two on the 23rd of June. How significant do you think both of those are for sending this current government a message? 
Yeah, look, um, I mean, I think it's really, really important. Wakefield will be, you know, clearly indicating what they think of this prime minister and his government, um, given the failures that uh, he has made. Um, we are very hopeful. We've got a very good candidate uh, in Simon Lightwood. He's local. Um, you know, he's lived there. He works for the NHS. He really understands what the issues are for the people in Wakefield. And I think that's really, really important that they have somebody that's one of their own um, that is clear on what the clear priorities are for people in Wakefield. So let's wait and see on the 23rd of June uh, what the outcome for that is. But I think that will be sending a very clear message uh, to the Prime Minister. And I think he should be really quite concerned. The mood is shifting. Definitely. Well, obviously, like you said, fingers crossed for the 23rd of June. I thought we could just jump now straight to international development just for the end of this uh, this, end of this recording. Um, and I just wanted to first put to you, really, the two major news stories of international development in terms of government policy over the last couple of years, which has been obviously Sunak's reduction in foreign aid and the merging of the Department for International Development into the Foreign Office. Uh, what do you make of both those decisions and would a Labour government reverse it? The pandemic started in February 2020 and nobody had anticipated that in June 2020 that the government would have announced the merger of uh, DFID, the you know, Department for International Development. Uh, and I say this because, of course, um, no country should be, especially Britain, one of the G7 nations, should be navel gazing withdrawing from the world stage um, and, you know, uh, restructuring a Whitehall department. It has been described as criminal. It's been described as institutional vandalism. You know, the reason we have our soft power is because of institutions like DFID and because of their independent nature. Um, there's been cross-party support for um, our, our, our development department. And of course, we had some of the best people working um, with us. And of course, we, we also had one of the best diplomatic services. That merger um, has meant actually both departments are really suffering because they've, they've hemorrhaged in terms of staff leaving. But if we think about what Rob and the Prime Minister were saying, that this will bring our diplomatic services and development services together, and it was going to be really brilliant and successful. Well, let's look at what happened in 2021, because that was the testbed case as to whether the merger of the departments was actually successful. And that's when Afghanistan happened, the fall of Kabul. Um, and that was absolutely detrimental. And actually what that showed is that the merger was a complete failure. Um, and, you know, uh, and the government, you know, hasn't wanted to admit that. Um, and even now with the international development strategy that's come out um, from this trust, which is a 10 year strategy, clearly there's a shift away from poverty. There's a shift away from Africa. There's a tilt to um, the South Pacific. Um, but the government just doesn't isn't quite clear as to what its priorities and what global Britain means. She didn't attach any funding to that strategy. We don't know what government's priorities, which countries they'll be prioritising, because apparently all that information is supposed to come um, much later. So this has really, really harmed Britain's reputation on the world stage. I say this because no one is looking to Britain for the big uh, solutions to the big problems in the way that they once was. So this is really, really important. And uh, as I've set out under Labour, you know, we will bring Britain back to the international stage as a trusted partner. And, and it wasn't just the merger happened, of course, because then came the callous cuts from Rob. Um, and, you know, it, he announced the sort of 3.9 billion uh, just before the fall of Afghanistan. No transparency, no ability to uh, question him. He tabled a written statement to the House. And the thing is, when you are cutting in, in this way, in the middle of a pandemic, when people expect you to be stepping up and galvanizing world leaders, um, you know, finding the solutions to address vaccine equity, 
this is certainly not something that they that they are expecting you to do and to the global south it gave an indication that actually britain is in retreat under this government why is that important because in cop 26 they can block agreements um so if we want to make sure that we are advancing our climate uh you know strategies and making sure that we work with countries looking at how do we help them adapt but of course mitigate uh climate uh, you know, something that they've not been responsible for, but we know that climate will displace many more people across the world. Um, then actually that was not the way to have done it. So, you know, and, and it was also the year that we presided over the presidency of the G7. Um, so imagine uh, Britain taking this course of action, um, you know, has really, really been damaging. I cannot stress enough how damaging um, this really is. And now what we found, the biggest scandal is, you know, the government uh, pledged to have, uh, you know, uh, given 100 million vaccines by now to the Global South. It said it was going to donate its surplus. We know it wasted 600,000 in August, which they had to throw away. And we asked uh, the government if they were going to offset this against the aid budget. The prime minister promised at the dispatch box he would not do that. He has now done that. But the biggest scandal is there's a 95 percent markup of those vaccines compared to what we actually purchased them for. That is absolutely scandalous, I have to say, that you are balancing the books in the back of the world's poorest, even though you know you've cut programs and funding, which is going to cost people's lives. Um, you know, it is really, really shameful, I have to say. And it matters. This idea that you can stoke culture wars and the British public don't care about this is, is, is nonsense, because actually the British public have shown far more solidarity. They care about the suffering of people. And if we look at the, the, the channel, well, a lot of those are Afghans. And why is it important we support their economy? Because if there's a collapse, there'll be a mass exodus of people. That's not in Britain's interest. It's not in anyone's interest. So it's really important that we make sure that the economy has the ability um, you know, that the central bank is, is, is able to function, that we have money flowing in Afghanistan and within Afga Afghanistan, so that actually the future of the Afghans is hopeful and aspirational, and actually all of our allies have a, have a responsibility around getting that right. So, Pri, you touched upon there our withdrawal from the international stage and the cut to Afghanistan. I believe as much as 78% of direct aid has been removed from being sent there. How is the loss of funding? and the cuts being made by this conservative government affecting Afghanistan? Look, I think it's really important. I mean, it was really important for me to go. It's been a year since the, nearly a year since the fall of Afghanistan. It's really important that we go and see for ourselves uh, what taxpayers' money is being used to pay for. Um, it's important that we see for ourselves, especially with constituents who are worried about family members that are left behind. And so, you know, the, the very fact that the Secretary of State hasn't bothered to go there, even though she's presided um, over a budget that has cut vital programming to women and girls. I mean, all the gains that we have made are, are, are something that we all need to protect. And there's an opportunity to be able to protect that. But of course, you've got to be uh, working, uh, you know, with the de facto government in order to make sure that you can progress uh, and advance, you know, especially getting girls into education, for example. Um, and what we saw there is, you know, I really want to make this point really clear, is the food that we are currently providing is merely helping people to survive. So a family for a month will get one bag of wheat, a bottle of sunflower oil, and, you know, sometimes it's about eight, ten people when I talk about a family. For one month, that's one meal a day. And the reason they're having that produce is because they need to get the nutritional value 
in order to survive. And I tell you what was really hard is when I went to the World Food Programme, I met a woman there who's widowed and she said, you know, I was contemplating sending, uh, selling my kidney. It was only because somebody referred me to the World Food Programme. This is a lifeline. She said, Britain is like an angel for us. Please don't forget us. And, and the, the, the other thing that she said that struck me, she said, I want to work. I want to get a job. I want to provide for my kids. I want them to go to school. I want them to get a job. I'm not asking for constant handouts, but actually look at our country. You know, most people are in debt. It's been decimated from decades of conflict. You know, it's been a country that's had to rely on uh, uh, development assistance from all from so many of our allies, right? You can't just exit and leave the country. Of 60 million people, more than 55% of the country is facing famine and starvation. Um, that just really puts into perspective how things are. When I went to the hospital and I saw a 10-month-old baby and lots of children occupying those beds with very little facilities, and why they're in hospital? Because they're facing malnutrition. You know, that is heartbreaking because I imagined what I saw in those women's eyes. They just stood, stood, stared through me. And I just thought, you know, um, if the doctor had told me we don't have anything else, you know, we don't have all the equipment, we don't know if your child's going to stay alive. I just put myself in those shoes and thought, how the hell would I feel? Well, I think anyone who listened to that answer would sort of struggle to argue that Britain doesn't need to step up and the global community needs to step up as well in aiding Afghanistan. It's just it's just so, so important. And as you say, it's 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 who we are as the British people. So that that is just so key. I think we're just about out of time and I really appreciate your time today. We've just got one final little segment that we try to do every week, um, and that is just a quick word association. So I'm going to throw a quick word or a quick phrase at you. And I just want to hear one word back. The first that comes into your head, you can, you know, tackle it straight on or it can be completely random it's completely up to you so uh, first word Boris Johnson corrupt Joe Biden refreshing Jacob Rees-Mogg a bore Tony Blair a brilliant orator the next election Labour under Keir Starmer